Hello, friends. Billy Dean Shoemake III here. And welcome to yet another episode of Strange Places. Now, just as kind of a um, disclaimer here, everybody is dealing with the COVID thing and being home and all that stuff. So, as a, uh, I guess, <laughs> inspirational message to you budding podcasters and voiceover artists out there, no matter what's going on, just uh, you know, follow, uh, do your thing, because we all know everybody's at home, and there's going to be some extra sounds and stuff in the podcast. I'm going to try to mix those out as best I can, but uh, you're probably going to hear stuff. <laughs> so you know, it's not you, you can't just always ask the family, "Hey, be quiet," because I'm going to record the stupid thing that 12 people are going to listen to. But you know, don't let it stop you, because uh, I got plenty of steak knives. So anyway, what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> is the Dyatlov Pass incident. Uh, it's it's one of the strangest things I could talk about on this little show slash podcast kind of thingy we got going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wondered, see, this was on the original episode, you know, on the original little series of Strange Places that I did, that, you know, cheesy little uh, robot voice thing, you know, that, uh, yeah, I want to redo these first few episodes. And I got to thinking, it's like, okay, how many strange places are there? And how many episodes of this could I possibly do? But uh, the way I see it, every town has its strange places. Earth itself is strange. We'll never run out of places. <laughs> so <clears throat> I always thought it would be fun to tackle these most famous ones first. The Dyatlov Pass incident, if you don't know, was an event in which nine Russian hikers died in the northern Ural Mountains between the 1st of February of 1959. In uncertain circumstances, to put it lightly, the experienced trekking group from the Ural Polytechnical Institute led by, led by Igor Dyatlov, Dyatlov, as you could pronounce it, had established a camp on the eastern slopes of a nearby mountain. During the night, Something caused them to cut their way out of the tent and flee the campsite while inadequately dressed for the heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. Now, going forward, I cannot pronounce Russian names. I cannot pronounce certain places. So out of respect for those who have met their end in this incident, I'm only going to refer to them by the first letter of their first name. Just out of respect. So going forward... After the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by Soviet authorities determined that six had died from hypothermia, while the other three had been killed by a physical trauma of some kind. One victim had major skull damage, two had severe chest trauma, and another had a small crack in the skull. Four of the bodies were found lying in running water in a creek, and three of these had soft tissue damage to the head and face. Two of the bodies were missing their eyes, one was missing its tongue, and one was missing the eyebrows. The investigation concluded that a, and this is a direct quote from the Russian uh, intelligence investigation, a compelling natural force, that's the official explanation from them, initial one, had caused the deaths. Kind of odd choice of words, compelling natural force. Numerous theories have been put forward to account for the unexplained deaths, including animal attacks, hypothermia, 
and uh, different kinds of avalanches, catabolic winds, infrasound-induced panic, military involvement, or a combination. All the way up to Bigfoot and aliens. Yeah, those two. <laughs> Russia opened a new investigation to the incident in 2019, actually, and its conclusions were presented in July 2020 that an avalanche had led to the deaths. Survivors of the avalanche had been forced to suddenly leave their camp in almost no visibility conditions with inadequate clothing. Again, putting that lightly, and I'll explain that here in a minute. And it died of hypothermia. And uh, see, the deputy head of the regional prosecutor's office said, and I quote, it was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. What circumstances do you ask? A study led by scientists in Zurich, published in 2021, suggested that a type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche could explain some of the injuries. A mountain pass in the area had been named the Dyatlov Pass in memory of the group, as you've probably surmised at this point. In many languages, the incident is now referred to as the Dyatlov Pass incident. However, the incident occurred about 1,700 meters away or so on the eastern slope of the mountain that they camped nearby. A prominent rock outcrop in the area uh, now has a memorial to the group. It's about uh, 500 meters or so southeast, southeast of the actual site of the camp itself. Now, I'm not going to go into too much background. We went to talk about the incident itself. But uh, basically in 19, just a quick Breeders' Digest version. In 1959, a group was formed for a, a skiing expedition across the northern Urals um, in the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, documents that were found in the tent of the expedition suggest that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was probably dispatched by, you know, local government organizations. Just a, your standard expedition. Now, before leaving, Dyatlov said he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to where they were supposed to be. It was expected that this group, uh, you know, that this would happen no later than February 12th. But Dyatlov had told someone before he departed from the group in the sports club, that he expected it to be maybe a tad longer here or there. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays are of a few days are common with expeditions like this even now. On the 20th of February, though, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and military forces became involved with planes, helicopters, and all that jazz ordered to join the operation. Now, on the 26th of February, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent near the summit of the mountain they were by. The campsite completely baffled the search party as it baffles all of us now. The student who found the tent, let's just call him M, said that the tent was half torn down and covered with snow, was empty, and all the group's belonging and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed leading down to the edge of a nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass, almost a mile to the northeast. Okay, almost a mile. About 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest edge, under a large Siberian pine, 
The searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies, those of, let's say, K and D, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting, maybe, that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, let's say D, K, and S, who died in poses suggesting they were attempting to return to the tent. And they were found distances of about 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 feet from the tree. Now, finding the remaining four travelers took damn near two months. They were finally found on May 4th under four meters, well, 13 feet. Sorry, I have <laughs> listeners in other countries other than our kooky one that doesn't follow the same system everybody else does. <laughs> they were found under four meters of snow in a ravine about 250 feet further into the woods from the pine tree. Now, this is what's weird. Three of the four were better dressed than the others. So there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed for use by the others. D was wearing Kay's burned, torn trousers and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn up jacket taken from another dead person in the, in the group. A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found, a medical examination found zero injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they all died of hypothermia. S had a small skull fracture, but it was not thought to be anything fatal. Okay. <laughs> when you're up on a mountain and you get a skull fracture, it's probably fucking fatal. I'm just saying. An examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Let's say T had made her skull da major, major skull damage. D and Z had chest fractures. According to investigators, the force required to cause such damage of that magnitude to their bodies would have been extremely high, comparable to that of a car crash, actually. Notably, th this is the weird part. The bodies had no external wounds associated with the inner bone fractures like they've been subjected to a very high level of pressure or concussive energy. All four bodies at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water had soft tissue damage to the head and face. D was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull bone, while Z had his eyeballs missing. A was missing eyebrows. The forensic uh, expert performing the postmortem judged that these injuries happened uh, postmortem due to the bodies being located in a stream which is not entirely uncommon animals do this they go the, the, these are the pieces that they scavenge off of you know carcasses first but we'll go back we'll get that to, to that in a minute because that even there's some circumstances even regarding that that are odd there was initial speculation that the indigenous mansi people their reindeer, reindeer herders local to the area, they attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. They interrogated a bunch of Mansi, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible. They showed no sign of hand-to-hand -hand struggle at all. Now, although the temperature was extremely low, we're talking negative 13 to negative 22 Fahrenheit. With a storm blowing on top of that, the dead were only partially dressed. Some only had one shoe, others wore only socks. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. 
Now, journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claim that it states, and I'm going to list off a few things. This is what we know. Six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. So six, conclusively proven, no question there, hypothermia. Three of those odd internal, uh, let's say, pressure-based or concussive injuries with no external injuries, by the way. Inside is torn up to the point where it would have taken the force of a car crash, but nothing on the outside. Keep that in mind. There were no indications of people nearby, apart from the nine travelers themselves. The tent had been ripped open from the inside. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. I don't see how that's... Well, I mean, yeah, I could see that. A lot of investigators here, they check the contents of the stomach to determine the time of death. Okay, I get it. Some levels of radiation were found on one of the victim's clothing. Yes, one of the victims was radioactive. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi, one of the investigators stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings because the force, the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged on the outside. Weird. They also, we also know that release documents contain no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. And, obviously, there were no survivors. Now, at the time, the official conclusion that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force, as they put it. The inquest officially ceased in May of 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. But in 1997... It was revealed that the negatives from the investigator's camera were kept in the private archive of one of the investigators himself. The film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009, where we get most of our information. And, um, you know, just another piece of info here that I think is important. <clears throat> On the 12th of April, 2018, Z's remains were exhumed on the initiative of journalists of the Russian tabloid newspapers. Contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. In addition, it turned out that Z's name was not on the list of those buried at the actual cemetery where the bodies were. Nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull matched post-war photographs of Z. And in February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident, although only three possible explanations are being considered. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility of a crime has been completely discounted. There's a couple related reports, too, that should be mentioned. 12-year-old Yuri, last name K, we'll just call him Yuri, who later became the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, actually, attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin, including one in particular, had a really strange, leathery, deep brown tan. Another group of hikers, about 30 miles south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange, orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. They saw glowing spheres in the sky. Similar spheres were observed in Ivedale and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service, and the military. These sightings were not noted in the 59 investigation, big surprise, 
And the various witnesses came forward years later. So eh, we don't know about that one. <laughs> the team reported, investigative team, that they had seen flying spheres themselves. And he, you know, they received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this claim. That's hearsay, but it's worth mentioning. The explanations are being avalanche. Uh, there's some contradictory evidence, as there will be. This happened in 1959, and they've only exhumed one body. Uh, catabatic wind, infrasound. Sorry, someone's mowing the fucking yard outside. But, you know, like I said... You got to roll with the punches and do what you got to do. I'm not going to stop because some jackass wants to mow at 3 p.m. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, awesome. I'm not a guy that cuts if you, you know. <laughs> Listen to that, man. It's as loud as a fucking airplane. Okay, anyway. Jesus. <laughs> Another hypothesis was infrasound. Uh, like, uh, it, it can create panic attacks in humans. Uh, infrasound is generated by wind as it passes over the top of mountains and was, you know, could be, it has been responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in hikers. It's a thing. Military tests. See, in one speculation, the campsite actually falls within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. The theory alleges that the hikers, woken by the loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. After some moments, members froze to death, attempting to endure the bombardment. Others commandeered their clothing, only, be, only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. These are, there are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time that the, that the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate, if you don't know how parachute mines work, I've seen them. They detonate while, I was in the military, they detonate while still in the air. Rather, the, uh, rather than, you know, striking the Earth's surface. They produce signature injuries. They have these, like, uh, anatomically correct dummies made out of the jelly stuff with actual organs and bones and shit in it. And we got to examine these. They produce signature in injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. I've seen this with my own eyes. Heavy internal damage with little to no external trauma. You always wondered if there was a military weapon that could liquefy the inside of a human being and leave everything on the outside intact. I'm telling you, parachute mines. This theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing weird orbs floating around or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and allegedly, you know, photographing them, whatnot. Potential military aircraft are descending parachute mines. I could see how those could be mistaken for UFOs or whatever they think they saw. One of the theories, right? A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons. And it's based partly on the discovery of radioactivity, which we mentioned earlier, one of the bodies being radioactive, on some of the clothing, as well as descriptions of the bodies by relatives as having a weird tanned look, like really orange skin and abnormally gray hair, which I didn't mention earlier. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of them, not just some of them. And the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by natural mummification. Just look at the area where they were. Three months of exposure to the cold and wind. The initial suppression by Soviet authorities of files describing the group's disappearance is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up. 
because you are dealing with Russia. Hey, not being judgmental. If you're dealing with America, you get the same thing. But the concealment of information about domestic incidents was standard procedure in the USSR, as it is now, actually. <laughs> and by the late 1980s, all the Dyatlov files had been released in some manner. Most of it's in the public domain now. Look at the photograph sometime. If you don't have a weak stomach, okay, forewarning here. Look at the photographs. A lot of the, what, what gets me, and this is something that's never mentioned in any of the um, investigative reports. Look at the faces, man. These people died terrified. Something scared the shit out of them. Now, there's something that does deserve to be mentioned. This is a phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. Sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like something you may have done at a party. Well, let me explain what it is. See, in the final throes of hypothermia, right before you're about to buy the farm, it induces a behavior known as paradoxical undressing, in which basically what it is is hypothermic subjects remove their clothes. Uh, subconsciously, they just remove clothing in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. Freezing to death actually feels like burning to death. It's a really strange, tingly, I'm on fire feeling. It's undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, others in the group appear to have acquitted, acquired rather, additional clothing from those who already died, which suggests that they were of sound enough mind to try to add layers. That is extremely important and something that nobody mentions. If you're adding layers of clothing to yourself in that kind of environment, you're at least of some kind of sound mind to where you're trying not to freeze to death. There are stories and reports and contradictory reports and eyewitness things. And you could go on for days about the Dyatlov Pass incident. You could go on for days. But uh, facts are facts. And actually, originally when I posted this episode on YouTube, when it was just the silly robot voice thing, I had somebody blitz me in the comment section. I don't know what set him off, what triggered him about this thing. But man, you would think that the guy was one of the investigators back in 1959 who's still walking around and trolling people on YouTube. He was pissed, telling me, well, what happened when the Dyatlov Pass incident? It was a moose attack. That silence is intentional. I just wanted that to sink in. He said, it was a moose attack, man. <laughs> that would explain the eyeballs missing and the lips and the heavy internal damages and all that stuff. Okay. Maybe. After, our, after they were already dead, maybe they got nommed on by a moose. But, uh, you know, <laughs> there's things that you can't explain there. Let's, let's look at things. Okay, well... We, like with every episode of uh, Strange Places, let's look at my take on it, okay? I'm not an investigator. I'm not a professional. I'm not a detective by any stretch of the imagination. But I do have some fucking common sense. And the best way to examine something like this is just to examine it one step at a time and remember who the hell you're dealing with. These are, these were professional hikers. These were people that knew what they were doing. And there's something really odd to me about the tent being ripped from the inside. But, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a panic, well, let, let's say it this way, okay? No matter what's going on, no matter what kind of emergency, 
them unzipping the tent from the inside is muscle memory at that point. I'm willing to bet because they've done it gazillions of times. It had to have been something pretty fucking panic-inducing to get them to slice that tent open from the inside. They are well aware. They were well aware of where they were, and considering the muscle memory of the time, doing that so many times, unzipping the tent, it had to have been something completely panic-inducing. We can surmise that beyond shadow of a doubt. It had to have been something terrifying. They cut the tent from the inside. They take off. Some of them not even wearing shoes. They just start fucking running. These being experienced hikers, they've seen their share and heard their share of animal sounds, which uh, I don't think a moose. <laughs> and there's no evidence at all that the tent had been trampled or anything like that. No animal tracks were even found near the tent. A moose isn't going to cause experienced hikers to haul ass wearing no clothes. But that aside, they exit the tent, cutting it from the inside. Uh, six of the bodies, we can, can, we can explain completely. Hypothermia. That's proven. That, that we know. The other three, and most of the bodies, see, I don't think that the removal of the soft tissue is anything strange. Most of them were found in a fucking flowing creek. We're talking fish, fish, and fish. <laughs> and animals that like to eat fish, fish, and fish. Animals go after these soft tissues first, usually. Eyeballs, lips, facial tissue, cartilage, that kind of shit. So that I don't think is anything mysterious or weird. The radiation, the extreme amount of radiation on one of the bodies as opposed to all of them, that bugs me. Because if it was, if, if that was out of the equation, the radiation part, if that was out of the equation, I would say it's obvious. It was those parachute mines that are confirmed to have been tested in the area at the time. We don't know if it was exactly the same day, whatever. We know that they were tested in the area at the time. I was in the military. I've seen these things go off. You ever see explosions like in a movie or whatever, something explodes, and then you see the shockwave that tosses people across the room. That's called a blast concussion. And these mines, boy, they got some concussion, let me tell you. They could break bones on the inside of your body. They can rearrange fucking organs. I'm not kidding. And not leave any damage on the outside. So if, if we didn't have the radiation part of it, that's what I'd say happened. The concussive, the, the concussive damage is what took all of them out. Paradoxical undressing. Yeah, I totally get that. That's a thing. We can explain that. So yeah, we can explain... Either by panic or something. Paradoxical undressing. I can buy that. Because that's in that's you know on just this side of reality. <laughs> now I don't mean to dismiss everybody's claims like the Yeti got after him or anything like that. I'm I'm not one to dismiss something just because it's crazy. If it makes sense, it makes sense. But the UFO thing, the Yeti thing, sorry, doesn't make sense. I've seen the parachute mines during the day. I can imagine what they would look like at night. And uh, depending on how you launch them, they fly pretty steady. 
They gently float to the ground. If you launch these things out of an aircraft in formation, if you say, hey, I'm going to drop these parachute mines in a V formation, they will hold that V formation almost until they hit the ground. They fly very steady, which is why I'm one of the few people that think that the Phoenix Lights incident in, what, 96? Wasn't UFOs at all. I think it was mines being dropped by military aircraft. Even though I believe in this stuff, I'm not going to believe everything that I hear, you know, and we need to be like that. We have to be objective and, and think a little bit. Are UFOs real? Bet your ass. I think so. I, I think the evidence is overwhelming. Are aliens, do aliens exist? I don't think they are what pop culture says they are. But without getting too much into it and being super specific, basically, yes, I do believe that aliens exist. Does the Dyatlov Pass, is that one of those pieces of ev evidence that prove that? I don't think so. But there's one thing that I cannot account for. The radiation. Where the hell did that come from? Those mines, those parachute mines are not radioactive. They're your standard bang-bang. They're extremely concussive. So, I don't know. If you want to examine this from step one to finding the bodies, this is what I think happened. And just using my common sense brain and not saying the Yeti did it just because I want the Yeti to exist or saying it was some big conspiracy because I want the conspiracy to exist. What it sounds like to me is that these experienced hikers who were off track, by the way, and were not supposed to camp there, the weather turned on them and they camped near the summit of a nearby mountain. So they were in an unfamiliar area. However, well, let's take that out. This is what I think happened. These are experienced hikers. They were hearing things happening outside of the tent. Explosions, things being tested, maybe military personnel shouting, whatever. They're hearing things go off. Scares the shit out of them. Maybe they even see the lights in the sky, you know, through the tent, not knowing what the hell these things are. Keep in mind, kids, this is 1959. This is during the big UFO boom where everybody was seeing them. Photographs were being taken of them. Can you argue that UFOs have been around since ancient times? Yeah, and I'm convinced of that, actually. But it seemed to have tapered off until around 1947. 1947 to about 19, latter 1960s. There was a massive influx in UFO sightings. They were everywhere. Keep in mind, that's going on at the time. I don't know how prominent it was in Russian society, how much they knew about that or how much it seeped into their culture. But what I think happened is they hear all this shit going on outside. They're off course. They're already kind of, you know, <laughs> on edge. They see the flying lights through the tent and they hear bangs going off. Scares the shit out of them. They haul ass out of that tent. They're not even bothered to unzip the thing. They just go, dressed or not. And uh, six of them succumb to hypothermia. The other ones, they can't find the camp. They climb a tree, they, you know, whatever. They can't get back to the camp. They've run too far. So they start taking bits of clothing off the ones who have already died. And, uh, you know, they succumb to the weather, the concussive blasts of the, of the mines that are still dropping. I've seen the effects of these things. And 
they fall into creeks in various areas and they are partially devoured by animals. Natural mummification ensues, which causes the weird skin stuff and hair looking longer than it should and whatnot. Now, I think that the Russian government was testing a hell of a lot more than just parachute mines in the area. I think they were testing something else or either that or the hikers were attacked by some other means. They were testing something, which to me would explain why one of the bodies was radioactive, the others weren't. I think that the Russian government was, see, the hikers were off course. The Russian government knew where these people were going to be. So they're going to carry on this test. That, that, was, that, that was in the plan. Then they realized, oh, shit, <laughs> the hikers got off course here. So governments being governments, they either continued with the test and said, hell with it. That's too bad. We're not going to cancel the test just because a bunch of hikers get lost. Or they see it as a rare opportunity. Hey, human trial here. And we could just say whatever. I think they were testing a hell of a lot more than parachute mines up there. Something, some other kind of experimental weapon, what have you. That's what I think happened. Was it a moose? No. <laughs> Unless it was like some kind of uh, mythological, you know, well, what the Mansi people live out there? It was, okay, what are the, let's say the Mansi worship like this, let's call it hyper mega moose. It's like this half cybernetic moose that punishes hikers that get lost. Maybe that's what that guy meant in the comments. Maybe he'll come back when I post this. Let's see how triggered he gets now. But yeah, that that's what I think happened. Um, could I be wrong? Yeah. Share your uh, thoughts in the comments below. Let me know what you think happened at the Dyatlov Pass incident. Was it UFOs? Was it Hyper Mega Moose? Was it, <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. Was it the Mansi people, Russian government? The Yeti. What do you think it was? Let's get a discussion going. And thanks for listening to another episode of Strange Places. Next time, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but it's, it's going to be weird. I have to find out what the original next episode of <laughs> Strange Places was. Maybe we'll find something in your hometown.